It was a landmark moment in American history, and it wasn't even planned. The part of the speech that everyone remembers was actually improvised. It was about halfway through his speech at the rally at Washington, D.C., when Martin Luther King Jr. uttered some of the most famous words in American history. He'd made it about halfway through his speech, and his thoughts drifted back to a speech he'd given just a few days earlier in Michigan. And during that speech, he had talked about a dream that he had for America. And so he stated those famous words, I have a dream. Now, the speech up until that point was still excellent, but it's that part of the speech that everyone remembers. I can't help wondering what it would have been like to be in the crowd as he began to say those now famous words. You can just imagine that everyone's attention would be riveted on him, that they would just be hanging on every word that came out of his mouth. And he talked about the dream he had for equality of all citizens in America. It's really a turning point in our nation's history. I have a dream. There's something about that language that really captures our imagination. There's something about dreams that is intriguing to human beings. If you've ever been around a good leader, you've probably been around a dreamer. If your supervisor at work is someone who has really brought your staff to whole new levels and whole new heights of accomplishment, it's probably because that person could dream big dreams. That person was a visionary. If you've ever been around a, a sports coach that was able to really carry the team year after year to really inspire and motivate that team, it's probably because that coach was able to dream big dreams and was a visionary. You may even have had a teacher growing up in school that pushed you to strive to be your best, to do your best, even to do things you might not have thought possible. Well, that teacher was probably a dreamer, someone who was dreaming big dreams and was able to realize your potential. Over the past few weeks, we've talked even about the dreams we have uh, for this body of believers right here. It was so exciting today to be able to be a part of the luncheon that took place right after worship, where our young ladies serving Christ served our widow's lunch, and we were able to sit and to talk and to hear the stories that these ladies had to tell about times years ago as the church was growing, even as the church here was just begun. And you wonder what kind of dreams those people dreamt throughout the years. And if they ever dreamed that there would be this group of people right here wanting to worship God. And it was so fun to go from that to a committee meeting for our adult education committee and to hear the dreams that we have there where our teachers want to grow in knowledge. Not only that, but they want to grow in number in their Bible classes. And we want to reach out and bring more people to Christ. It's important to dream dreams. But you know, there's another kind of dream that is intriguing to us. And that is the actual physical dreams we have when we're asleep at night. Have you ever had a dream so real you just woke up and you were sure that it had happened? It might have been a good dream. In that case, you would have woken up in a good mood. But it could have been a bad dream. And you wake up and you've just got this nagging feeling for the whole morning. Dreams can really affect us. I thought that since Valentine's Day was coming up soon that you would appreciate this. I heard just a couple of weeks ago a story about a young couple and the wife had gone to sleep at night and she'd had just an incredible dream. 
And she dreamed that her husband had come to her and had given her the most beautiful diamond ring she'd ever seen in her life. I mean, the setting was gorgeous. It fit perfectly. It was just the ideal ring. And she was so excited. And she woke up smiling, as you can imagine. And she went to the breakfast table, sitting across from her husband, and she told him all about the dream. And she went into very specific detail about what the ring looked like and all the different things about it that she liked. And, and so she looked at him and she paused and he finally looked up from his breakfast and she said, what do you think that dream means? He looked at her a little bit and he just nodded and said, I think I, I, think I understand, I get the hint. And just let it go at that. That night, they had planned on having dinner together. And so, as she arrived home from work, she saw that he'd come home early. He had cooked a wonderful meal. He'd set it out, and uh, the table was set, and there were candles there, and they were able to sit down and have good conversation. And he had made all of these uh, things there to make the evening so nice. And right as they were finishing dessert, he reached under the table, and he said, you know, I've been thinking a lot about what you said this morning, and, well, I've got you something. And so he hands it to her. And she looks at a box, beautifully wrapped. And so she unties the ribbon and and she tears off the wrapping paper and she opens up the box and inside it she sees what he has gone out and bought her that day. A small book entitled How to Interpret Dreams. (laughs) Interpretation of dreams is also very important to us. We're intrigued by dreams, but we also want to know what they mean. There are books on how to interpret dreams all over bookstores. We want to know what they mean and I don't think it's an accident that oftentimes in the Bible, God would use dreams to speak to people, and He would use interpreters of those dreams to spread His message. If you would please turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1, page 779 in your pew Bibles. Daniel chapter 1, we're going to start with this text and look in the lives of two specific individuals in the Old Testament who interpreted dreams. Now obviously, they were given that gift by God But God used them in specific situations. The first one is Daniel, and the second one is Joseph. And I'd like for us to look at the aspects of their faith uh, that we can really learn from and that we can take from in just these few minutes tonight and we can use throughout the week. As we see Daniel, we see the first chapter of a book in which a great many things are changing. Look at the first verse of Daniel chapter 1. We read, "...in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim king of Judah..." Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Jerusalem was under siege, and it had been overcome. And so over these next few verses, things are going to change in the life of Daniel. The life that he had grown up in, the people that he had known, and the society that he was familiar with was all going to change. Let's look on down to verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles youth in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. The first thing we can pick up on in Daniel's actions is the fact that he maintained his identity. As he was faced with all of this change, you can imagine everything that was taking place around him. First of all, he had a new king to serve. Now he was serving Nebuchadnezzar. Not only that, but he was one of the choice young men, and so his life's plans had been dramatically altered. His life's plans were now to serve the king. He was given a specific education. 
in the language and literature of the Chaldeans. Whether he wanted to or not, that's what he was going to study. He was also given a specific diet that the king had set out for him. But even more important than that, he was given a new name. And the three friends that were with him were also given new names. So many times we read about the story of Daniel, and I think we skip over this key point in his life. He was actually given a different name. That might not sound significant, but if you can imagine living your life, and as you've grown, you've had a name, and when people said your name, that carried with it a piece of your identity. Imagine at this point in your life, having your name changed and going from this point forward with a different name. It would be strange, wouldn't it? It would be hard to hold on to the identity of that life that you would live. So much of who we are is wrapped up in what we think about when we think about our names. Not only that, but the names were even more significant. Daniel's name is said to have meant God has judged. But the name he was given, we see in verse 7, that the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, Daniel and his three friends. And to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar. And that name is said to mean protect the king. So here we have Daniel who had a name that gave uh, honor and that referenced God's judgment and God's power. And now he's given a name that honors the king, protect the king. His friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, are better known to us as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And their three names that they grew up with in their Jewish heritage are said to have meant the Lord has been gracious. Uh, Mishael's meant who is what God is. And Azariah's meant the Lord has helped. Well, their new names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Shadrach meant I'm very fearful. Meshach, I am of no account. And Abednego meant servant. So here you have names that gave honor to God. And now you have names that indicate a lower status, a lower class. Not only that, but all of these names were derived from the names of pagan gods, pagan deities. There's a lot in a name. And so it would have been difficult for Daniel to really hold on to his identity through all of this. But look at what he does in verse 8. I love the way this verse reads. It says, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. He made up his mind. It was an intentional decision. If we're going to maintain our identity as followers of God, as Christians, it's going to take an intentional decision on our part to be different from the world around us. We see the same principle evidenced in Joseph's life. If you don't mind, flip over to Genesis chapter 39. And you probably remember the story of Joseph, the coat of many colors, and the fact that he was his father's favorite, so much so that his brothers were jealous of him and eventually sold him into slavery. Well, in Genesis 39, we encounter Joseph at a point in his life where he's working for Potiphar. He's really risen in the ranks. God has been with him. And Potiphar trusts him. He's a trusted official. And he's having to deal with advances that are being made by Potiphar's wife. She's attempting to seduce him. But listen to Joseph's response. In Genesis chapter 39, and look at the latter part of verse 9. Listen to what he says to Potiphar's wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? That's his response. As she's making advances toward him, he says, how could I do this and sin against God? You see, through all this time, he had maintained his identity as a follower of God. It would have been easy to give it up. Sitting in the pit, or maybe walking with a group of slaves that were traveling through to be sold, it would have been easy to give up his identity as a follower of God, but he didn't. 
It would have been easy for Daniel to give up his identity with all the change that was taking place around him, but he didn't. He made an intentional decision to be different. As Christians, we're going to have to do that same thing in today's society. We'll have to make intentional decisions to be different. And that's a challenge, especially in today's culture. I think one of the best examples I've ever heard used was by a man named Bruce McClarty. He's a preacher in Searcy, Arkansas. And he described what he referred to as arm's-length Christianity. And I thought this was a great illustration. It's so easy for us in life to take the culture around us, to take what the media would tell us is morally acceptable, what our politicians or government would tell us is morally acceptable, and to take that and decide we want to be just a little bit better than that. We want to be just an arm's length away from where society is. We want to be different, not too different, just an arm's length away. And the way Bruce would describe it was, if you were to think of that mindset in the 1950s, think of where culture was in the 1950s. What was allowed to be on television or the radio? What kind of laws were in place? And the church wanted to be just a little bit better morally than the culture around them. Just an arm's length away. The only problem is, if you're basing your morality on the culture, you're in trouble because the culture is going to change. And so you can see just as as well as I can, that in the 1950s and in the 1960s there was a change. And culture would move a little bit this way. In the 1970s there was a change. All of a sudden things on television and in magazines uh, were allowed to be there that weren't there in the 1950s. And so if you're trying to stay an arm's length away from culture, but culture's always moving this way, you're always going to be moving forward. There it is, okay. Now I'm an arm's length away. And then it moves again. And there it is. Now I'm an arm's length away. And so you can imagine going from the 50s and the 60s and 70s and 80s, 90s to where we are today. And if you're trying to stay just an arm's length away from culture, you'll find yourself in a place that you never would have imagined 20 or 30 years ago. You'll find yourself in a place that culture wouldn't even dared to have been 40 or 50 years ago. You see, instead of holding our arms out to our culture around us and trying to prop ourselves up, we need to hold our hand out to God to his laws. You see, Daniel couldn't control the culture around him. He couldn't control the king who was sitting on the earthly throne, but he could control the king that he served. He couldn't control what he was taught when he was having to deal with the education of the Chaldeans, but he he could control whom he listened to. And he could control what he grasped onto. Daniel made a decision to do that. And he makes that decision in verse 8. And I like to see what's in verse 9. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. We see also in verse 17, as we read about the four youths, Daniel and his three friends, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Do you think that Daniel would have been given those gifts if he hadn't made the intentional decision to maintain his identity? Do you think he would have even been in a position to interpret dreams if he hadn't decided to honor God instead of the king? I think there's a direct connection there. We see when Joseph made the decision with Potiphar's wife to honor God and not to honor his fleshly lusts or to honor what it might have been tempting for him to do, we see in Genesis chapter 39 that he isn't rewarded quite the same way. In fact, 
Potiphar's wife makes so many advances on him that finally she grabs a hold of his cloak. And as he tries to run away from her, she uses that cloak to frame him. But look at what we read in Genesis 39 and verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. When we work to maintain our identity as followers of God, as Christians, the Lord will be with us. The Lord is with Daniel when things were going well for Daniel. He'd made the decision to follow God, and things at the time were going well. Later on, they wouldn't be, but right now they were, and God is with them. Joseph had made the decision to honor God, and things weren't going well physically for him, but God was still with him. And no matter what the physical outcomes are, if we maintain our identity, God will be with us as well. And so we see that Daniel maintained his identity. And throughout the first chapter, we see that God was with him and his three friends and gave them great abilities and knowledge. And Daniel was even able to interpret dreams. But let's see what happens in chapter 2. We talked about how a bad dream can make us feel. And we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar as he wakes up in the morning after he's had a terrible dream. Look in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 2. We read, Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king calls in his wise men because he's ready to understand what this dream meant. He's obviously grumpy. He hasn't had very much sleep. And so he brings them in and says, I want to know what this dream meant. And they say, well, just tell it to us and we'll tell you. Look at his response in verse 5. The king replied to the Chaldeans, Their command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. The king didn't give them an easy way out. There was no way to fake this. He wanted them to tell him what he had dreamed and then what it meant. There was no way that they could get around this. And he gave a very stiff penalty for failure here. Look at what he says in verse 5. You will be torn limb from limb. Your houses will be made a rubbish heap. He was very serious. This was probably an, an impulsive decision. You can imagine a king who had been troubled after a night of losing sleep the next morning saying, listen, if you don't get this taken care of, it's going to cost you your lives. Well, numbered among those who were wise men at the time was Daniel and his friends. And so the wise men, after hearing this from the king, uh, answer him a second time in verse 7. And they say, let the king tell the dreams to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. They say, please, make this easy on us. Just tell us what you dreamed. Then we'll give you an interpretation. But the king in verse 8 says, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time inasmuch as you have seen that the command for me is firm. You see, they reacted to the king's command and he saw that they were bargaining for time and he had no patience for it. So not only did Daniel maintain his identity, but in verse 14 we see that he encounters this situation and he acted with wisdom. Look at what we see in chapter 2, verse 14. After he hears the news, then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. Discretion and discernment. Isn't it interesting that in high-stress situations, intense situations, our discretion and our discernment are usually the first things to go? Our wisdom is usually the first thing to fly out the window? If you're at work and you're in a conversation with a, a supervisor or even someone who works with you and 
the debate becomes heated, and maybe there's a little bit of an argument, our immediate response is to snap back when we're in those tense situations. Not to act with, with wisdom or to try to have some discretion about what we say. We just want to get, snap something right back at them. It can happen in school. It can happen at work. It happened here to Daniel. He was given a tense command from the king. He replied with discretion and discernment. He handled it with wisdom. He handled it wisely. And because of that, in verse 16, Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation of the king. And Daniel received that time. The other wise men weren't able to do that. Daniel acted with discretion and some discernment, and he was able to get some extra time. We see Joseph even doing the same thing. Because you remember the story of Joseph being thrown in jail didn't stop there. The two servants of Pharaoh, the cupbearer and the baker, were there in with Joseph. And they both had dreams. God gave Joseph the ability to interpret those dreams. turned out to be true. And later on, quite some time down the road, it was brought to the attention of Pharaoh because Pharaoh had had a dream as well. So he brings Joseph before the court and asks him what these dreams mean. You remember, not only does Joseph give that interpretation that there will be a time of plenty, there will be a time when the crops are going well and everything's going great, and then there will be a time of famine, he also tells the Pharaoh what he thinks he should do. He answered with wisdom, with discernment, with discretion. We read about it this way when we look in the book of Proverbs in chapter 29. 29 verse 8 would read, Scorners set a city aflame, but wise men turn away anger. Verse 11, A fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. Daniel answered with wisdom. And the king's rage that had been so apparent when he was dealing with his wise men, when handled by some discretion and discernment, was calmed. He was able to diffuse a tense situation and buy some time. As we live today, it's important for us to use discretion, discernment. It's important for us to act with wisdom. And so many times, a wise answer can turn away that potentially dangerous confrontation and that potential anger that dwells. So if we remember to maintain our identity and we remember to act with wisdom, then we're walking in line with what Daniel did. And we see that God gave Daniel the interpretation to the king's dream. And so I'd like for us to look at the third thing we see from Daniel's story here. He glorified God. After the secret is revealed to him, look over at Daniel 2, verse 24. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, And listen to this. As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what this dream meant. You see, it would have been easy in this situation for Daniel to be able to take a lot of the credit and probably feel pretty good about himself. Think about all the lives he was saying. 
those wise men who wouldn't have to die because now he had given the interpretation to the king. And I don't know if you noticed, but as we were reading through in chapter 2, in verse 6, the king promised a great deal of reward to those who could interpret the dream. He described it as gifts and a reward and great honor. And so that would have been waiting for Daniel if he just offered the interpretation and if he'd just taken some of the credit. But he didn't. He glorified God. And he was honest with Nebuchadnezzar, who would not have been sympathetic toward a servant of God, but he gently pointed him back to the one who was the source of this interpretation. He glorified God. And we see that reflected throughout Joseph's life. But also when Joseph interprets dreams, he gives a similar statement, giving the glory to God and not taking it for himself. Both of these men were not afraid to glorify God. You can imagine the ups and downs of Joseph's life. Being, going from the pit to being a top servant to being back in jail, and Joseph eventually, because of the interpretation of the Pharaoh's dream, was second in command. He answered only to Pharaoh. Didn't he deserve that? Wasn't it a point in his life where he could say, look, I've been through this and this, and finally I've worked myself out of prison, and I'm up in a position of power? It's about time. I deserve it. But he didn't have that kind of attitude. He glorified God. Daniel had been through a lot. Daniel had had his identity almost wrestled away from him. He'd had his entire life turned around. And now he was finally going to get some of the reward that was due him. Didn't he deserve it? Wasn't it about time? No, he glorified God. God is very serious about giving him the glory. We see that several times through the Bible. You'll remember Moses when he made the mistake of striking the rock instead of speaking to it, also made the comment, must we bring forth water out of this rock? As if to say that he and Aaron had something to do with the miracle God had provided. It was a serious mistake. God is very serious about us giving him the glory. And we're in a very blessed position right here where we are at Mount Juliet. Not that this is a perfect congregation or even a perfect town or a perfect state or a perfect country. But we have a great deal of blessings. And it would be a serious mistake if we didn't glorify God for everything He's given us. Daniel was able to maintain his identity. He acted with wisdom and he glorified God. Joseph did the same thing. And from these two men, we can learn some great secrets of faith. But you know, that other kind of dream we talked about at the beginning, that dream that really captures people's hearts, that's also found in the Bible. As we close, if you would flip over to John chapter 17, we see that Jesus has a dream for us. He has a plan for us. Look at the words of this prayer that Jesus is praying in John chapter 17. He says in verse 20 in his prayer, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Jesus' dream, Jesus' plan for his followers is for us to be unified. And the reason I use the word plan instead of dream is because I don't want this to seem like a concept that we can't grasp onto. 
a concept that's far in the future, something we can grab onto right now. Jesus' plan, his dream for the church is for it to be unified. And if we remember the same things that Daniel and Joseph remembered, if we remember to maintain our identity as Christians, never to compromise our faith or our beliefs, never to compromise what God has called us to do, we also remember to act wisely in the world in which we're placed. And if we remember to give God all the glory, we can achieve that same kind of unity. I spoke with a man who had visited Mount Juliet, I would imagine about seven or eight years ago. I talked with him just two days ago. And he said to me, you know, I don't remember much about my trip through that area of Tennessee, but I did stop in your congregation. And the two words he used to describe it were warm and friendly. I think that's still true today. We're blessed here to have a great deal of unity and warmth and friendliness. Let's capture that. Let's remember what Daniel and Joseph did and use those key aspects of our faith to realize the dream that Jesus had for all of his followers, all of those who had become Christians. So the question that we're left with is how do we achieve that dream of unity? If you're here tonight and you've not been unified with the body of Christ, if you haven't been unified with Christ through baptism and risen to be a member of this unified body, there would be no better time than tonight to start that journey. It may be that you're here and these key aspects of faith we've talked about have just slipped out of your life and you don't feel like you're really unified, a part of that dream of unity that Jesus had. If that's the case, we'd love to help you in any way that we possibly can. Jesus has a dream for us. We have a dream for unity here, this congregation, and it's already being realized by the warmth, the love we see around us. Let's continue to grow. Let's continue to reach out to those around us. And if that needs to start with a decision made tonight, let's do that together as we stand and as we sing.